So Luke 15, this parable, it's very interesting. I, I, I think, like I said, this is probably one of the most famous of Jesus' parables. Um, I also think it's one of the parables that Christians assume that they understand, but maybe don't really get. And um, it's interesting that this parable doesn't offend us like it should as Christians, as religious insiders, because it was definitely designed to offend religious insiders and people that assumed they understood what God's grace was all about. Um, if you look at Luke chapter 15, it's important to see the context in which this parable comes. I actually had an interesting discussion one time with a guy, a very thoughtful, intelligent guy who would not be a follower of Jesus, would not profess that, and we talked about that kind of stuff. He actually was doing some work with us on a musical project and had an opportunity to hang out with him and talk with him. We went to lunch and we started talking about different things. Um, and he would say that his, he actually told me that maybe his philosophy of life would best be described by the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy it would probably be his sort of approach to spirituality and understanding reality, which is to say, you know, just kind of laugh at all of it because it's all so ridiculous. And, um, that was a book that was really popular when I was in college. It's really interesting in, in the last year or two to see it come out on a movie. But um, anyway, so we were talking about this stuff, and I guess, you know, he was asking me different questions about things. And finally, we get, as we're driving back to the studio after lunch, he says to me, he goes, okay, you know, I, I won't use any of the expletives that he used, but he said, all right, you know, it seems like, you know, you've been shooting me pretty straight. There's one thing I don't get, and I've asked, you know, people about this, and nobody can really give me a good answer. Because what, what is the deal with this story about the prodigal son? Why does this guy who goes off and just basically says, you know, you know, up yours to his father, how is he the hero? Why does he get welcomed back? And this guy who's been doing, you know, good stuff, you know, is upset. Of course he'd be upset. Why, sh why shouldn't the older son be upset? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's helpful to know. I, I pointed him to what I'm going to point to you here. In verse, chapter 15, verse 1, now the parable, you know, starts at verse 11. But if you look at verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, meaning Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And I said, you know, what, what you need to understand about this parable is that Jesus is defending why he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He's, he's basically speaking to religious insiders who feel like their obedience and their kind of living the straight and narrow has made them acceptable to God. And Jesus is addressing them and saying, you don't get it at all. The, the, Jesus is using this parable to, say, to call into question what religious people think the heart of the gospel message is. And it's really important to understand that. Really, this parable is not just about a wayward son who leaves and squanders the family wealth, um, gets in over his head, and decides to come crawling back to his father. It really is about, in, in some ways, it's more about the older son than it is about the younger son. Because the younger son represents the kind of people that Jesus was eating with, the kind of people that the Pharisees and the religious leaders said, he had no right to eat with. It was scandalous for him to be with these people. And Jesus is saying, no, not only is it right for me to be with them, but you're farther away from the Father's heart than you realize. That's what we need to understand about this parable, that it, it is possible 
to avoid Jesus in two different ways, but both of them at the heart are the same. Um, Flannery O'Connor, Catholic Southern writer, said one time that in the South, people avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. That the South is not really Christian as much as it is haunted by Christ. There's sort of this kind of Christ sort of as a ghost, sort of, sort of behind a lot of things, or sort of you get glimpses of him here and there. But, but the South is not really Christian. And, and in particular, people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. There are two ways to avoid Jesus. And, and the two brothers represent these two ways to avoid Jesus. And yet what speaks so clearly through this parable that's so important is the heart of the Father. And I would say, actually, and the surprising thing you may not have noticed is this parable actually teaches us about Jesus, who is the true older brother. But that remains to be uh, proved here, I guess, as we go through this. Let's look uh, at verse 11 and read this familiar parable, and then we'll dig into it here. Now notice Jesus continued. Uh, part of what I'm going to argue is these three parables about lost things all go together. In the first two parables, there's something that's lost, and there's a seeker who goes after the lost things. In the third parable, there's something that's lost, the younger son, but there's nobody who goes after him. Conspicuous by its absence is, is the seeker. And, and I think verse 11 links these three parables together. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them, being the father, between the, between the sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never, diso and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. 
and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the parable ends leaving you wondering how will the older son respond to the father? So again, remember this, passage, this parable is told to older brothers. What will you do? Will you stand on your self-righteousness feeling that you've been wronged by the Father because you've been slaving for him and he's never given you what you think you deserve? Or will you recognize that even in your attitude towards him you have dishonored him and your only hope is to come and accept his welcome and his invitation that comes from grace alone? Well, let's go back to the beginning of this parable and kind of, kind of work through it here. What I want to talk about is the sin of the, of the first son. We'll talk about the, the younger son first. Um, and, you know, what you need to understand, some, some of the cultural background that helps you understand what this parable is saying, is that when the younger son says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance, what he's really saying to his father is, I consider you dead. The only way for the inheritance to be shared before the father, was really for the father to be, de to be dead. And what's, what's really amazing, this is incredibly insulting. When Middle Eastern people hear this story, they are very offended. This, any culture that values family and family honor and family tradition, something we have less of in the modern individualistic West, but any culture that's more pre-modern and, and really more traditional recognizes right away how incredibly offensive it is for the younger son to say to his father, I wish you were dead. Not only that, um, his, his dad confirms this down later. Twice he says, this son of mine was dead and is now alive. The father understands that when the younger son comes and says, give me my share of the inheritance, what the, father, what the son is saying is, this relationship between us should be ended. I consider you dead. I consider you dead. There's a complete rupturing of the relationship. And really, you know, what he does is not only scandalous to the father, it's scandalous to the whole community. You have to understand, this is, you know, Middle Eastern village life is the setting of this parable. Um, real estate transactions in the world of Jesus' day took years and years um, to accomplish, and yet this son is able to liquidate the estate, take the money, and run off really pretty quickly, it says. Um, and and to, again, to do this while the father was still living and in good health would have shocked and horrified not just uh, the family, but the whole village. The whole village would have just been incredibly offended by what this kid does. And it says that he goes and he squanders the money. The NIV translation, which I read from, um, says he squandered the money on wild living. And there's some dispute about the Greek behind here. It doesn't actually say that he spent it on prostitutes. The older brother claims that later in the parable. And I think that actually is more a clue to the older brother um, trying to make the younger son seem worse than he is and thus prop himself up. But the, the, the term used here actually doesn't, doesn't mean that he spent it on on uh, prostitutes, but he squandered the money. He wasted the money. And, you know, he gets to the point of real, you know, his sin, and it's clearly sin, to rupture this relationship with his father. Uh, and I think that's important to understand that, you know, at the heart of the Bible's conception of sin, sin is not just breaking rules in the Bible's conception. It really is a rupturing of a relationship. And this parable, I think, brings that out very, very clearly. Um, often Christians don't bring that out so clearly. If you ask a lot of Christians what is sin, 
and who are people that we would regard as sinners, usually they'll point to a list of things that people do. The Bible's conception of sin is that it's this sort of, more like a psychological complex. It's this kind of organic thing inside of you that, that is saying, I don't want you, God, to be God. I want to be God. And I, and I really don't want you in my life. I want to rupture this relationship so that I can be Lord of my own life. I can be in charge of my own life. It's a personal and relational issue in the Bible's conception, sin is. It's not just a matter of breaking the rules. But it brings us into great misery. It always brings us into great misery because we weren't made to live on our own. And that's what happens to the prodigal. Um, he's in need. A famine comes in. I like to think of it as God's providential mercy. Um, famines don't, you know, in the Bible's conceptions, famines, you know, often are used by God to bring his people to their senses. Um, and, and so that's interesting to see that that happens here. And what he's done, and this is what's, you know, I mean, imagine, you know, do you understand that Jews are not real big on pork, right, on pigs? It's one of the unclean animals uh, that they're not allowed to eat. So the fact that this Jewish boy has basically sold himself to a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, uh, to feed pigs is about as low and a dishonorable, miserable condition as you could get as a Jewish boy. Not only that, but the, the story says that he actually wished he was a pig. He gets to the point of, of even longing and saying, oh, if only I were able to eat the pig's food. Only, if only I were able to be like a pig. You couldn't express, you know, sort of the misery of sin in a more striking manner to Jewish people than Jesus' story here. Um, and, you know, he, he still can't return home. That's, that's the, the thing. I mean, he's in misery, he has nothing to eat, and yet the shame of returning home is a huge barrier for him because he knows that he's offended his father, he's offended his family, he's really offended the whole, um, the whole culture. But what's he going to do, Right? Um, the prodigal considers feeding pigs better than going home, right? I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of place, you know, where sort of the insanity of sin and your choices have brought you to a place where you know life would be so much better over here, and yet that kind of shred of self-righteousness is keeping you from coming back to life or back to family, or back to some relationship, back to God even. Um, but eventually, eventually, the text says he come to his senses. And, um, you know, here, here's what you, what you need to understand. At this point in the story, as Jesus is describing what this son does and how miserable he is, the people hearing the story, the leaders, the Pharisees, the, you know, the uh, religious leaders would be saying, Good. It's exactly what this kid deserves. Jesus is drawing them in. These are people that hate, that hate broken, sinful people. These religious insiders, the whole point of, that Jesus is making is, you know, you, you despise these people, and you despise me for, for even fellowshipping, even hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors, you, you understand, were regarded as worse than just people who had screwed up. They were regarded as traitors who'd allied themselves with the hated Romans. The Romans were occupying Israel at this time. They were an occupying army. And the tax collectors were people who had um, turned against the Jewish people and had 
taken up uh, working for the Romans. Okay, so the tax collectors were really hated, and they were seen as traitors to Israel. And the sinners, you know, of course, um, uh, I don't need to talk about them. But, but at this point, Jesus' audience would be approving the story. This is a great story. The bad guys get what they deserve. People love this story. Uh, but it goes on. Now, here's the interesting thing. The son, the prodigal son, comes up with a solution to his problem. And you need to see this. I think this is the point at which a lot of people misunderstand what this parable is about. Because they fail to see that what the son is doing when he comes to his senses is he's making a plan for how he can earn his way back into the father's favor. And you see that here in verse 17 and verse 19. Look what he says. He goes, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. There's a sense of injustice. This isn't right. No, it's not right what's happened to me. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and then listen to the speech he rehearses, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's pretty good. But then he says, make me like one of your hired men. You see the demand? At one level, it sounds good. It starts out well. I have no, no right to be called your son. But I demand that you make me like one of your hired men. Now, a hired man was somebody, what he's, what he's basically planning to do is to go back and earn and pay off his debt. He's not a hired man with somebody who wouldn't live within the family, but with somebody who would live in their own place, and they'd be able to work, earn money, and be able to pay off the debt. He's saying, he's got this plan, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm no worse than any of my father's hired men. Why should I be starving? I don't deserve this. I'm going to go back and say, Father, okay, I, I've really screwed up. No longer worthy to be called your son. But make me one of your hired men, and I'll prove to you, I'll show you that I can, that I can earn and pay off my debt. What's his motivation? He's starving. What's he really dreaming of? What's his real hope and his goal? What he hopes for is, is the, the life that the hired men enjoy. But you need to understand, he is not dreaming or longing to live in the house again. He doesn't really want to be reconciled to his father. He doesn't really want to be considered a son. He's content to be a hired man. Now, why would he be content to be a hired man? Why would he even consider that more desirable than being a son? I would submit to you, ultimately, it's because he really doesn't understand the heart of his father. He never did. Otherwise, he never would have left. Otherwise, he never would have said, I would rather you were dead. It's because he is ultimately committed to his independence. What seems like life to him is to be disconnected from his father, to be disconnected from God, to have his own way. It seems good. It's led to great misery, and yet, even though he wants his misery relieved, he doesn't really want to change his basic approach to life. He still wants to be in charge. He wants to be able to pay off his debt. And that, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, what's wrong with, you know, what we call legalism? Or this idea of, you know, what's really at the heart of legalism or trying to earn God's smile by what you do is that ultimately you're wanting to control God. You don't want to be dependent upon God. At one level, you, you wonder sometimes, why is it that my heart or that people I know um, really resist the idea of believing in God's free grace? It's because this. If you are totally dependent upon God's grace 
and, and, and you have nothing to offer to him, it's a very vulnerable position to be in. We don't like that. We like to be in control. We feel like if we can pay for it, even a little bit of it, then, then we sort of have some, some chips. We sort of have some leverage over God. And often you don't realize this is in your heart until circumstances come along that you feel you don't deserve. And that's when you realize sometimes, you know, wow, I really thought that I trusted God in his grace, but now something's come into my life and I feel like, God, you have no right. I didn't deserve this. But listen, you know, lurking in the heart of all of us is this deep commitment to wanting to be in control of our lives. You see it manifest so clearly in the prodigal, but I'm going to show you that it's actually in the, in the, in the older son as well. But understand this. At the heart of what the prodigal done, it's not that he just wastes the money on riotous living. The real issue with this younger son is he, he doesn't want to have a relationship with his father. He wants his independence. And he remains committed to that, even in his plan for what he's going to do when he comes back. But what happens? What happens? The father sees him from far off. The father sees him from far off. And, you know, you need to understand, the father has expressed love even from the beginning of this parable. The fact that he takes the hurt when his son dishonors him and says, I wish you were dead, he doesn't say, okay, well, you know, you're out of here. You know, how dare you? He does divide the estate. Sometimes, I mean, God's patience with us when we do the most hurtful things to him is really astounding sometimes, isn't it? But um, beyond that, he sees his son from a great distance, which means he's been looking for his son. And it says in verse 20 that he's filled with compassion. Now, you need to understand, in our day, where do farmers live? They live out on the farm. In Jesus' day, farmers did not live on the farm. Farmers lived in the village. And what the, what the father knows is that this son, for this son to come back, he is going to have to, he's going to, have to walk through the gauntlet of all the offended people, all the villagers. There's really, you know, it's not like they have cable TV or, you know, bands playing. There's nothing going on in this village. So when this guy starts on his way home, and he's not going to be able to ride a bus and sort of get off right in front of the house. He's going to have to walk home. And if he walks home, he's going to be coming across people who know who he is, they know what he's done, and they can't wait to see what his father is going to do to him, to this wretched, disrespectful, ingrate of a son when he comes home. And so can you just imagine the crowd coming, saying, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And yet what happens? The father sees him from a distance, and the father deflects all of that attention by doing an, really an outrageous, embarrassing thing that no Middle Eastern man would ever do. He hikes up his skirts, and he runs. Middle Eastern men don't do that. They don't show their legs in public. Incredibly scandalous. They don't run. As a matter of fact, Aristotle said that the greatness of a man is known by how slow he walks. It was a deeply ingrained cultural attitude. You don't run. It's incredibly undignified. But the father runs. He does all kinds of things that you just wouldn't do. He doesn't show any restraint. He kisses the son. The Greek actually uses a, a tense of the, of, of the word that says that he kept kissing him repeatedly. Doesn't just give him a little peck on the, peck on the cheek. He just keeps 
kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. It's like I talk to my little boys about how I just want to kiss your face off. I, I was reading this, this uh, passage today, and I was, Cooper was curled up next to me, my six-year-old, and I'm just like, I just want to, you just want to kiss him, and then you just want to kiss him again, and then, you know, you go back to reading it, and you just want to give him another little kiss. And that's the picture of the father here, right? He just can't get enough of kissing his son. Now, let's, let me just say this. What you need to understand is in, in, the, in the days of Jesus, there was a particular understanding of what you needed in order to be restored to the Father. There was a particular understanding of repentance, which went this way. To, to really repent, to really be restored to the Father, you had to say you were sorry, you had to make up for what you had done. You had to, to sort of um, pay off your debt or um, pay back everybody you owed. And then you could be restored to the Father. This is why, I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but shepherds, were regarded as unforgivable because there was no way for them to know how many fields they had trespassed on with their sheep. Therefore, it was impossible for them to repent, said the religious leaders, because they had no way of paying back all the people they had stolen from. That's why it's pretty significant that the angels come to the shepherds and announce the great tidings of, uh, the, the glad tidings of great joy, however it says it. Um, shepherds were regarded as impossible uh, to be saved kind of people. And so it is, you know, with the religious leaders of, Jewish, of, of Jesus' day. They, ex they like what the son plans to do. When the son says, Let me, make me one of your hired men and I'll pay back everything I owe, that seems good to them. That seems right. He says, yeah, that's what he needs to do. He needs to pay back what he owes. And maybe the father will be kind and forgive him. But what happens when he sees the father's love lavished upon him? He doesn't say what he plans to say. Look at what he says. He planned to say, make me like one of your hired men. But he doesn't, does he? You see what he says? Um, Father, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. It's only in light of the Father's outrageous love where the Father really takes the harm and the shame upon himself, deflecting it away from his son. It's only in light of that that the younger son is able to actually collapse on mercy. This is why, like for instance, in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 4, it says the kindness and mercy of God is designed to lead to repentance. And oh, how I wish Christian churches understood that. Because it seems, when I listen to, to a lot of Christian churches, it seems that they've gotten the idea that it's, you know, scaring the bejesus out of people and telling them what horrible people they are that's what's going to lead people to repentance. It's not true. If all that you come to understand is that I've sinned and that the Father is angry at me, you will never have the freedom to come back to God and collapse upon his mercy. All that you will do is you'll try to hide again. Oh, my sin's being exposed, but I can't go to God with it. I can't pay him back. What am I going to do? I'm going to hide. Or maybe I, so one of the ways that we love to hide is by promising that we'll never do it again. This is what a lot of people think repentance is. Repentance is, oh, I've been caught. Oh, God, I've been caught. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I promise never to do this again. If only you'll forgive me. If only you'll get me out of it this time. I'll never do this again. But sort of making those little deals with God is not what the heart of, of, of being a Christian is all about. That's what the son plans to do. But, but what it means to be a Christian is to say, Father, I've been caught, 
I have nothing to offer you. I can't even begin to promise you that I won't do it again. Of course I'll do it again. I can't, I can't ask you to forgive me based upon my promise to never do it again. My only hope is to, is to put my hope and trust in Jesus and say, Father, forgive me. I knew what I did. I did it anyway because I didn't care about you. I'm not going to whitewash it. I'm not going to cover it up. I'm going to say, this is the heart of who I am. I'm deeply committed to my way, no matter how it hurts you. But Father, in this moment, I have a little bit of sanity. I realize this is not what I was made for. I'm so broken over this. I want to collapse on your mercy. I pray you would change my heart and receive me. That's repentance. Repentance is not saying, oh God, help me. I'll fix it. I'll never do it again. God looks at that and he says, I, why would I take the word of a liar as a basis for forgiveness? No, collapsing upon Jesus' mercy is our only, our only hope. And um, I love what, you know, what, the, what the father does to this kid. He restores him. He gives him things like the ring. Do you know the significance of giving this son the ring? The ring is, is what you would use to, to put your seal in the hot wax. It was the way you signed contracts. So he extends to this son who said to the father, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I wish you were dead. He's extended to that son says, I trust you. Not because you deserve it but because of my grace and my mercy. I, I honor you, and I even am going to throw a party, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, let me, let me uh, jump to the, to the older son. And if you're following this outline, I'm skipping over lots of stuff. I just have to. I wish I didn't have to, but I have to. The older brother, his sin is seen right from the beginning. He should have objected. When the younger son said, divide, give me my share of the inheritance, what does the father do? He divides the inheritance among them. The older son should not have accepted that because the older son, by his silence, is acquiescing in the sin of his younger son and saying, I too am fine with regarding you as dead. He doesn't object. He publicly insults his father later in verse 26. You see, in this um, culture, when the older son hears about the party, what he should have done, there were very kind of specific cultural expectations for the older son. He should have went into the party. He should have welcomed everybody. Um, he should have extended congratulations and then excused himself to change into his own robes, the fitting of a party, and come back to the party. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he refuses to go into the party, and when he does that, he deeply dishonors the father. Because what you need to understand is, the party is being thrown not for the son. The father is throwing the party to celebrate his lavish grace and love. The party is thrown to honor the father. I've been able to recover my son that was lost. Come celebrate with me. It, it's not a celebration for the younger son. It's actually a celebration of the father's grace. And the older son says, I don't want to have anything to do with that. The older son has never known the heart of his father. And the, the crazy thing is, in verse 29, he says, son, Father, I've never disobeyed your orders, even as he's refusing to go into the party. <laughs> no, Father, I've never, I've never disobeyed you. This is the... 
you know, the problem, you know, older brothers, religious insiders, who are sort of just so trapped in their self-righteousness, there's this great passage in Isaiah chapter 44 where it says that the one who worships idols, um, it, it says about him that he, the, he can't even save himself or see that the thing in his right hand is a lie. It talks about how, you know, he feeds on ashes and a deluded heart misleads him. When, you, when you're trusting in yourself rather than in God, it has a way of distorting your whole sense of reality. And so this, this kid is dishonoring his father, and even as he's dishonoring his father, he says, I've never disobeyed you, because he's reduced the relationship that he should be having with his father. He's reduced it to a list of rules. He said, I've done, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done that. But he's completely missed the idea that what really matters is his relationship with his father. Does he honor his father? Does he you know, welcome his father? Does he, does he cherish his father's heart? Does he want to know his father? relate to his father. No, he's just content with doing all the things. And, and he even regards his relationship with his father to be that of a slave. He says, I've slaved for you. Oh, you're deeply revealing. Do you ever feel like that? Father, I've slaved for you all these years, and what has it got me? So I would submit that the heart of the older brother is not that far away from us. But again, look at what the father, the father does. The father runs after the younger son, but he comes out to the older son. The, the, the older son doesn't address him with any kind of respect. He doesn't say, Father. He just starts yelling at his dad. And still his father says, My son. Still addresses him with honor, with respect. He just wants to have a party with his friends. He wants to isolate himself from his family. He says, Give me, give me an animal to go have a party with my friends. Again, he doesn't show any interest in being part of the family. Excuse me. Ultimately, he doesn't appreciate what he has. Verse 31. His father says, son, have you forgotten what you have? And that's such a huge, important point. Religious insiders, the people who are Christians and lose sight of what a big deal it is, just begin to take that for granted, progressively grow more and more bitter. Unless your heart is constantly being kept soft by thanking God for what he's given you, your heart will grow bitter. It's so easy to take for granted what God has given us. That's why I often you know, pray before meals, Lord, may this food remind us that you're a giver of good gifts. Help us never to take that for granted. May this food that we've, you've given us be a reminder that you give us more than we deserve, more than we need. We can live on bread and water, rice and beans, whatever. But here we're about to partake of this glorious meal. How different, you know, Bart Simpson's prayer, where he says, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. <laughs> but, but which expresses our heart most of the time? If, you've, if you feel like you've paid for everything that you have, Eventually, you begin to wonder if you've gotten a raw deal. But when you realize that everything you have is because of the grace of the Father, and you consciously are sort of connecting those dots through prayers of thankfulness, it, it, it really helps to soften your heart. And that's what this, this guy has lost sight of. And here's, here's the thing. Before you sin, well, we're going to do the Ten Commandments this fall in RUF, and one of the most important points to understand is before you sin in any of the commandments, before you covet, before you 
murder, before you um, even break the Sabbath, before any of those things, the first commandment that you break is to make God into an idol, to make God into something less than he is. You forget how good he is. The only reason that you would covet is because you feel that God hasn't given you what you really need or really want. You're doubting that either he's good enough or powerful enough or that he cares about you. In essence, you've made God into an idol, into something less than he really is. And the only way, sort of, and then see what happens is then you sin, you say, well, I need this thing, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. No matter, you know, even if it means, you know, backstabbing somebody else or um, deceiving somebody else or using my words to manipulate or whatever. Before you break any of those other commandments, you first have forgotten what God is really like. That's what's happened to this older brother. He's forgotten what his father is really like. And therefore, the, the way back, the way back is to be reminded of who God really is. And that's what gets us back to this point about the good news. The good news is that the father comes after about, about both sons. That you can be somebody who's running from the father because you want to be in control of your life, because you want to do whatever you think you need to do, but you can also be running from Jesus, be avoiding the Father by trying to keep the rules. There's two ways to avoid Jesus. You can avoid Jesus like the younger son by saying, I don't, I'm not going to let you make the rules. I'm going to make the rules. Or you can try to avoid Jesus by keeping all the rules and saying, God, I've done everything you required. I've slaved for you, therefore you owe me. But both of them, both of them, both of those strategies are, are, are ultimately a complete failure to understand the heart of what it means to, to be a Christian. Which means somebody who is completely dependent upon the Father's grace and knows that the Father's grace is big enough to depend upon. And that's, you know, what I love about this parable is it, is it says, look, both of these kids, both of these kids are alienated from the heart of the Father. But the Father goes after both of them. The Father endures public humiliation for both of them. And final point, What's even so amazing is to gaze upon Jesus. As I said, this is the third of, of three parables. In all of these parables, you have an older brother who seeks after, or an, something, someone who seeks after that which is lost. What Jesus is saying by this parable is, look, you don't, you don't understand why I'm eating with sinners and tax collectors? Have you forgotten, religious leaders of Israel, that God has called you to bind up the brokenhearted, to seek and save that which is lost. But what you refuse to do, I am doing. And how dare you criticize me? I am the true older brother who seeks and saves that which is lost. Ultimately, our only hope, whether we're an older brother or a younger brother, is that we have a true older brother who will chase us down. That when we're saying, you know, up yours, whether, you know, we're saying it by saying, I'm going to do what I want and live you know, any way I want, or we're saying it to God the Father by saying, look, up yours, I've done everything I need to do, you need to come through for me. Whichever way you're saying up yours to God the Father, God the Father is saying, I'm not giving up on you. I'm chasing you down. I will not take no for an answer. And so what, what will you say to that? How will you respond to that? Gaze upon Jesus. Remember, I mean, here's the thing. Everything left that the prodigal doesn't spend is left for the older son. But Jesus is the older son who gives up everything. 
for prodigals. He spends everything he has for prodigals. Jesus, um, you know, is both the honored guest, the one who is celebrated as that which, the one who seeks and saves that which is lost, but he's also the one who's slain so that we can have a feast. We need such an older brother, and we have one in Jesus. And um, that's, that's really, I guess, you know, all I want to say um, tonight. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your love. We thank you that you are the one who seeks after um, lost people. And I pray, Lord, that wherever we find ourselves tonight, as the prodigal, as the older son, Lord, I pray that you would bring us to our senses, that we would not just realize our sin and our misery, but we would see even freshly tonight how glorious your love is. How could we not depend upon you if you would endure public humiliation for us? You have done everything needed for us to be restored to relationship with you. You have taken the shame that we deserved. You have taken the punishment that we deserve for dishonoring you. And I pray, Lord, that we would have confidence to know that we can turn to you because everything's been done. We don't have to try to earn your righteousness. We don't have to try to to get you to like us by weeping over and over for our sin to try and get you off our back. We don't need to do all the right things. We don't need to be perfect people. We need to collapse upon your grace. And yet, Lord, even that is something that we can't do. Even that's something we can't lump up. But we pray that you would send your spirit to open our eyes, to see you, Jesus, for who you are, that we could collapse upon your mercy. Thank you that you are, that when you look at us, that you just can't stop kissing on us. And I pray, Lord, that that would melt our heart. We pray this in Jesus.